Hello, I'm Alex Rutke. I'm a barrister at Thurgood and Essex Chamber specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased to be joined today in the shed by Daisy Chung and Michael, Mikey Dunn. Anyone who's ever listened to any of these ones before will know I don't really like introducing my speakers. I really want them to introduce themselves. So Daisy, over to you, please introduce yourself. Uh, thank you so much, Alex, for having us here today. Um, I'm an assistant professor of law and uh, the deputy director and, research, and a research fellow at the Center for Medical Ethics and Law at the University of Hong Kong. Um, my research focuses on sort of mental health and capacity law and ethics, but I've been primarily focusing on um, writing on mental capacity law and ethics across several contexts, um, including some funded projects on adult guardianship regime, regimes, and uh, best interests uh, determinations in Asian jurisdictions. And of course, this edited collection on advanced medical directives in Asia, um, which we've just heard will be out um, on the 9th. Brilliant, yeah. excellent. I should just say for anyone listening, any other anything other than today, that's gonna be uh, the 9th of February. So this is brilliant. Oh, so yes, this week yes. as far as we're concerned, brilliant. So Mikey, over to you. Thanks Alex, and likewise, a pleasure to be in your virtual shed today. Um, my name is Mikey Dunn. I'm an associate professor in the Centre for Biomedical Ethics at the National University of Singapore. Um, I am interested in ethics, by and large, in, in practical caregiving environments. Um, done quite a lot of work looking at the ethics of the law and practice of mental capacity, um, both in England and Wales, but also increasingly in this part of the world. Um, also interested in the broad ethical dimensions of family caregiving relationships and how we understand our obligations and duties in those contexts. Um, and nice to nice to be here. Brilliant, excellent. Well, I, I could talk to you both about so many different things because all the, I love the intersection between law and ethics and all the, all the different things you've you, you, you've raised in your introductions. But yes, the hook for today, the reason why I've sort of gathered you in this, I should say, slightly cold-ridden shed. So apologies in advance for any snuffling. Is is the book which is about to come out about advanced healthcare directives across Asia. And I, I mean, I really can't wait to see it because it's such an interesting idea and such an important piece of work. But can you just sort of walk me through what gave you the idea of wanting to do this piece of work? Um, Daisy, do you want to kick off? I've just, because I happen to be looking at you on my screen. <laughs> yeah, sure, thank you. Um, so the uh, book project itself is actually one in a sort of a series of projects that I've really had the pleasure to work on with uh, my long-term collaborator here, Mikey. Um, so we, we started working together, you know, a number of years ago, and we've touched upon a range of topics within mental capacity, law and ethics in the Asian context. And this particular book really grew out of this um, international conference uh, which had been scheduled a few years ago to take place um, here in Hong Kong, but unfortunately had to be postponed um, numerous times and then eventually converted to an online webinar, which was held uh, two years ago, where we were delighted to have uh, you, of course, Alex, and a number of our chapter contributors join the discussion with us. And um, the purpose um, for, for putting together this conference and then, you know, obviously the book project that came um, afterwards was to really address some of the gaps in the knowledge about the law and practice um, of advanced directives in Asia, because while there is obviously an uh, abundant literature on the concept and practice of uh, ADs coming out of Western jurisdictions. Uh, there is a surprising lack of comprehensive and systematic analysis of ADs in the Asian context, which uh, our volume aims to address. So um, in terms of the jurisdictions, there are 16 of them. So I'm not going to um, you know, uh, cover all of them. They, I believe they will be on the, the website together um, with this uh, video if you're interested 
to see them. But basically, we uh, categorize them into three types of jurisdictions. So we have the well-regulated jurisdictions, which uh, we define as jurisdictions with a clear set of legal rules um, that, uh, on, that are on or encompassing ADs. And then we have the semi-regulated jurisdictions, which uh, involve other forms of regulation, such as uh, uh, official regulatory documents, practical guidelines, other forms of guidance, uh, from professional societies, et cetera. And then finally, of course, we have the non-regulated jurisdictions where there might be at best sort of broad principles contained in legislation or guidelines around healthcare that stress the importance of uh, patient preferences in very general terms, but with no regulations or guidance on um, AD specifically. So the 16 jurisdictions sort of fall evenly among um, these three um, uh, categories, and we're hope we 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 were hoping, and and I hope we have achieved, um, in a, in a way to sort of uh, present a range of different ways in which um, ADs have been regulated and uh, practiced in Asian jurisdictions. So, no, thank you, thank you. So, I mean, Mikey, um, are there, were there any jurisdictions where there was literally no understanding of the idea of being able to express a preference in advance? Insofar as we could find them, yes, I think there were. Certainly there were areas where, you know, you, you really have to dig very deeply to find any remote reference to something that looks like an advanced directive um, or something that even looks like a sort of an approach to substituted decision making or indeed any account of what decision making looks like. And of course, you know, Asia is a, a huge place and we've only got 16 jurisdictions covered. So you know, part of the reason why we struggled to get more parts of Asia in the book is because it's almost impossible really to, to sort of interrogate the framework. Many, many of the, the smaller countries in this part of the world don't have established scholars, don't have a sort of community of academic inquiry even. So, you know, there are, there are sometimes some open questions about that. But yes, absolutely. Um, there are, there is, it's certainly the case that, you know, advanced directives would be uh, a sort of misnomer, a completely misunderstood sense of no real local reference point for it. Um, in that sense, I think that's a fair comment, isn't it, Daisy? For what, what, yeah. what we would have done, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So, so just going back, Alex, if I, if I may, to that sort of backstory bit, because I think, I mean, I think one of the things that's quite interesting is is the ways in which what we are sort of motivated to do, and and, and Daisy captured it in, in a way which described other evolving uh, work relationship is this idea of sort of looking at Asia in its own terms, because I think you know in the world of mental capacity law, practice, policy, ethics. You know, we often, and you know, as someone who's relocated from the UK to, to, to Southeast Asia, equally guilty of this, I think, is that we, you know, we often frame Asia or comparative jurisdictions from an interest in our own home in yeah. that sense. That we sort of look to Asia because we are seeing interesting and important things happening in mental capacity law locally. Um, and I think one thing we were really critical to try to, 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 to address in motivating ourselves and our approach was to take Asian in, in, in its own terms and, and not to have that slightly sort of West East comparative motivation, um, showcasing you know, voices in Asia that perhaps don't get a lot of coverage in this field. I mean, you know, we, we work in Hong Kong and Singapore, they're quite well known jurisdictions for mental capacity and medical law generally, because of course you know, they share common heritage with the UK and elsewhere. But you know, it's it's rare to be able to showcase, for example, Thailand or Iran or Saudi Arabia or Pakistan, for example. So, you know, I think that was an important part of, of our motivation too. No, that, that's incredibly interesting and really important. Yes, because you're right, because so many books will have kind of, you know, isn't this fascinating by comparison with the Mental Capacity Act? Or isn't this fascinating by comparison with? And it's, there's always, there's 
almost invariably a very slight sense of the MCA being this sort of paradigm and everything else being, you know, how do you measure up, which I'm always acutely conscious of when I'm, you know, talking to people in different jurisdictions, I mean, any jurisdiction, but, but in particular jurisdictions which are outside that sphere. So, I mean, with that, that's, no, I think that's really interesting, really important. I, I kind of almost, in a way, want you to, to tell me about what you would most like to, you know, most like to showcase, as it were. But before I get there, I just, can I just dig into a little bit more? Because I find very interesting this idea of how you actually interrogate a jurisdiction. You know, I like this, you know, you're almost, you're explaining how you're almost having to do kind of, or with your contributors, almost trying to do, it's not archaeology but kind of anthropology digging in and trying to get and understand you know something which may have a completely different set of terms but actually might functionally be doing the same sort of thing I don't know if I, either of you want to sort of pick up on you know how you how that how you find that exercise I don't know Mikey this time do you want to go do you want to go first and then yeah yeah sure sure absolutely I mean I think so I think that conference was a critical way of sort of almost uh, coming up with our own methodological strategy on that because you're absolutely right, Alex. There's a huge diversity. I think, you know, we'll talk later about that, the, the reality of that diversity, the, the kind of breaking apart the idea that all of Asia has a particular kind of common approach. But, um, you know, I think we struggled with knowing quite how to get into the material. And it became quite clear quite quickly that we couldn't simply rely on a, 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 a sort of unveiling the law or, or the or the kind of, you know, the, the, the cases or even the guidelines that may be in place of law. But we had to take a much more sort of sophisticated and broad socio-legal approach to that, I think. So what we agreed with our contributors was a sort of framework for interrogation, if you like, rather than a, a well-refined methodology where we would ask people to think about, um, you know, what are, if any, legal rules or um, legal elements of the story of regulating or not um, this area of advanced directives, particularly around healthcare, of course. Um, but we also encourage them to look downwards, if you like, into the kind of worlds of practice. And it was quite clear, quite quickly, again, that for many people, the, the work was being done from the bottom up. It was coming from practitioners developing their own institutional localized guidelines, perhaps even implicitly sometimes rather than explicitly. And, and maybe that was you know, in replacement of the law, or the law would be responsive to that over time. So you know, we, we need to kind of take a 360 degree view on on the, the multiple ways in which advanced directives were sort of taking shape and emerging and not, not being driven solely by the law. But so the structure of the chapters essentially reflects that, uh, that that sort of framework that we, we derived together. Daisy, I don't know if there was anything you wanted to add just on, on that aspect. Yeah, I, I, I would just add that, um, and to achieve that, because all of these jurisdictions sort of they they deal with um a, a, the regulation and practice of advanced directives so differently that we had to make sure the questionnaire or the framework that we gave all of the contributors was broad enough so that you know there would be jurisdictions that focused just on the legislation and then you know jurisdictions that skipped you know the first two pages of questions and then just ended up on the social cultural context and and, and focused on that so in order to capture uh, make sure everyone, you know, was able to capture all of the parts that we found interesting. We had this very broad questionnaire, which allowed them to really kind of pick and choose which to focus on, which we found very interesting towards the end. No, brilliant, brilliant. I mean, I, I certainly find on, on on kind of doing comparative work, there's quite a lot of work which needs to be done to make sure you're speaking the same language. I don't know if you found, I mean, either literally the same language, but actually, you know, you're using a term which means something to you and you just assume it means the same. I can see nods from both of you. Is that, is that chiming with your experiences? 
Uh, yeah, it was a, it was it was a, it was a complicated journey of, of of coming to a shared understanding of even the requirements, let alone the, the common touch points. You're absolutely right, Alex. Yeah, not not an easy project in that sense to to to, to, to configure. Yeah. yeah, and also we um had uh I think what was helpful was that we had a book talk uh or, sorry uh like a, a sort of a book directions meeting after the conference where we got you know, as many contributors as possible and we really just sat down and talked about what we understood as advanced directives. Are you guys happy with the way that we've defined this? You know, do you have any uh you know other things you want to add? So so it was helpful to sort of hash that all out in a meeting before we started getting on the drafting of the chapters. So. I want to make sure we're not, as it were, doing an undifferentiated mass of Asia, because um, <laughs> that's kind of almost extremely peculiar if we, we we allowed that that to carry on, given the your really important comments you made earlier on. So, I mean, within within the very broad, I mean, it's fascinating how many jurisdictions. I mean, sixteen is obviously a, a not exactly a microcosm, but it's only a limited number of all of them. But I mean, you've got a really broad spread. I don't know if there's sort of any any particular jurisdiction which you found particularly interesting or particularly challenging or particularly stimulating that you know either of you want to just sort of make sure that someone who's looking completely from the outside might be thinking gosh I should turn to that chapter not necessarily to go how does it reflect back on mine but just you know wow as it were I don't know Daisy do you want to do you want to lead off on that one yeah, I mean, this is a really hard question for me because there were so many really interesting chapters um, in the book. Um, you know, there would be chapters uh, also interesting in relation to each other. So how, yeah. you know, opposing ends of the spectrum. So, you know, we saw jurisdictions that were extremely, extremely uh, complex in terms of uh, formalities and requirements. And then on the other end, entirely no formalities and requirements and the problems that came up with that. Um, and then, you know, very interestingly, you know, we had, uh, I, I would mention actually Israel is one of the more interesting chapters um, to me. Again, you know, there were so many and it's really difficult. And Vinny is the single jurisdiction, but yes. Yeah, because um, because of the sort of the specificity and also the the different layers of regulation they had. So there were there was clearly the the dying patient law, which was the key you know legislative framework. But then there were also decisions, judicial decisions that had been made before that took a more liberal approach. Whereas the dying patient law was very sort of um, uh, a very conservative, uh, very religious. Uh, it was sort of the um, so uh, an ultra orthodox religious approach compared to a more liberal approach, and then there was also the approach on, uh, you know, on on the more uh, higher level sort of a form uh, legislative approach versus the on the practice, uh, sorry, on the ground practice. You know, what 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 are people doing on the ground and how they are accepting these rules and how they are implementing these rules. So there was that sort of distinction as well. And then in the legislation itself, there was this, you know, very fascinating um, specificity. So they they defined everything very very specifically. You know, there are two stages of death, dying and then dying imminently, which is also in South Korea as well. And then sort of what is permitted in each stage and then which, um, you know, Dr. Bentwich argues that this specificity can be actually paradoxical because, um, you know, when they categorize um, very neatly into things like less than six months, more than more than six months, it's sometimes difficult for prognoses to fall, you know, directly into these categories. And, you know, if you have an acute disease like pneumonia, you could technically die within two weeks, and then you could also be successfully treated. And so for the doctors, it's actually much harder to implement this law because of the specificity that's involved. Um, so yeah, and then obviously all the religious tensions and, as well. So that chapter I thought was um, particularly fascinating. That six month thing is just fascinating. I, yeah, there are so many areas where the, you know, the law suddenly says six months and actually in reality, and it's fascinating to hear that's being picked up, it's basically impossible to tell. Exactly. Uh, yeah. As I understand it. Yeah. 
yeah. Mikey, being equally invidious about sort of singling out, you know, aspects. Um, so I don't know. I mean, again, exactly the same concerns apply that, that Daisy's expressed. I mean, there's such variety, such diversity and such sort of interest for people who cover this again with sort of more established, perhaps legally statutory focused approach to the regulation of these matters. But I mean, I, I, I enjoy the um, the Philippines chapter. Uh, and, and so that's that's written by Leo de Castro and some colleagues based in the Philippines. And it's, it has the subtitle In Search of a Legal Framework, which I, I really like because it sort of captures this idea of bottom up, bottom up approaches to thinking about what we need from a consensus view around advanced decisions. And you know, essentially, they're sort of building, building an approach that is in some sense internationally aligned because you know, practitioners are being responsive to, to you know, what good practice requires in, in, medical, in the medical context. Um, and, and slowly but surely seems to be sort of like looking for codification. Um, so I like that idea of sort of practitioner-driven driven, um, change. And that's very present in that chapter in particular. And one gets the sense, I don't know, but one, I wonder whether that, sounds like a recipe for things working better than as it were imposed from top down possibly possibly yeah yeah i don't know whether leo and his colleagues would agree with that but yeah they certainly sort of they certainly sort of they certainly sort of look i mean they're looking for they, the argument is that you know, now's the time for the law to get in so yes perhaps the mere codification of, of professional you know professional standards might be something that they would be you know I guess in a way, yeah, sort of if the ground is fertile, as it were, as opposed to yeah. entirely stony with, you know, sort of, yeah. So, I mean, as with most edited collections, there's a, I think, I know there's a kind of conclusion chapter where you magically you know, pull it all together. And I don't want to kind of you know, get too many spoilers because I really want people to go and read it, not least because, and I need to mention this, and I hope you two mention this again, um, it's open access. So, which is hugely important that, that a book like this is open access and rather than being hidden behind, behind some dreadful paywall. But, you know, can you just give us a flavour, and maybe I'll, I'll start with Mikey here, just give us a flavour here of, of, you know, your concluding mm -hmm. themes and, and, you know, what you wanted to draw out from having sort of worked with the contributors. And thank you for the way you've worked, walked yeah. me through that, you know, drawing that together and what themes you've draw, drawn out. Yeah. I mean, there are two levels, I think, of, of insight that we'd want to convey. Um, one at one, one level, there is the kind of common themes that we see coming up and coming in, in 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 very different kinds of ways, and perhaps with different kinds of justifications across the chapters. And and, and for example, that includes you know the, the role of the family. I mean, the, you know, I don't want to overemphasize this idea of the family-focused approach in Asia, because what we are seeing is again radically different approaches to the way in which the family features or is allowed to feature in these decision-making processes. But we do see the family coming in in very interesting uh, divergent ways across these jurisdictions. And um, we also see multiple different kind of modes of, of socio-cultural influence and particularly around religion. Uh, again, hugely diverse. So we have you know, Muslim countries represented in the book, Malaysia, um, Saudi Arabia, Iran, et cetera, but um, they don't follow the same patterns in any kind of obvious way. And certainly that reflects more than just religious differences reflected in those countries. So we have quite a lot to say comparatively about those kinds of things. I'm sure Daisy would add, add to that. I mean, the other, the other level of, 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 I guess, contribution I think we want to make and try to explain is, you know, we have real diversity here. We have huge diversity that challenges sort of east-west binary that's quite reductionist to you know, autonomy versus the family or autonomy versus communitarian approaches. 
Um, but we also, interestingly, have a lot of recognisable, in, in Western terms, values lying front and centre in these Asian jurisdictions. Huge references to values of autonomy, dignity and such like. Front and foremost, both in practice level contributions, but also in legislation and, and case discussions. So you know, it's not the case that there is a kind of divergence between the West and the East, even in that sense. So one thing that we're trying to do, I guess, is try to explain how, and this is actually a particular contribution we want to make, which is the ways in which there's a kind of mode of accommodation going on between international expectations and perhaps regimes of that are quite common in terms of the universality of values like autonomy, respecting autonomy, which all of these countries seem to want to be responding to, and trying to reconcile those with local commitments, perhaps very divergent judicial approaches to sorting out practical problems in the courts, different ways of making laws, you know, how they try to reconcile that. And most importantly, um, we have this sort of idea of generative accommodation where we show how that mode of coming together, if you like, whether it's from the bottom up or the top down, itself produces new approaches to working with advanced decisions or regulating them. There's a kind of generative meeting ground, a generative sort of fertile, productive meeting place between the sort of international expectations that countries are being responsive to, but their local traditions as well. And that's, I think, quite a new way of thinking about that East-West global bioethical or global legal um, harmonization process, for example. No, that's fascinating. And David, do you want to add to that? Because that, I'm really interested in learning more about that because I think that's, it sounds incredibly productive and I just want to sort of, you know, amplify as it were. Yeah, no. Um, so this idea of generative accommodation, we spent a lot of time sort of talking and thinking about how to describe it because we were we were noticing this uh, trend, but we didn't know how best to describe it. And so, you know, we, we had some hesitations about the word accommodation, you know, but we, we decided to choose this as the word in the end because of several reasons, you know, in, in terms of we, we go into this in the chapter, but sort of, you know, timing of, you know, when things uh, developed um, and also, you know, the incongruence sometimes between these um, sort of key principles of respect for autonomy and, and other uh, principles with the local culture. And then also, uh, you know, the lack of sort of an indig indigenous um, evolution of a, a concept of advanced directive from, from something that's local, you know, bioethics. And so because of these various reasons, we felt it was a form of accommodation, but in a very sort of generative sense. And as Mikey described, these are very distinctive and locally specific approaches. And in the book, um, I think what's interesting is we sort of give examples of um, jurisdictions that are generative to different degrees. So we have, you know, jurisdictions that are more generative and we talk about the ways in which those are more generative and the modes, uh, so the different types of modes in which they are generative and then jurisdictions that are very not generative. Um, and then we talk about sort of why that's the case um, and, and describe, um, you know, our, our reasoning for that. So I think, you know, in putting across this concept, I mean, this is just an introduction to the concept that we're hoping to explore further in, in you know, subsequent papers. Um, and, and sort of relate it to a more general Asian bioethics um, more widely. But in this particular context, we feel that it really sort of can cover a lot of the different approaches that we've seen in these jurisdictions, which we think is a helpful way of understanding the material in the book. I, I, my mind is whirring furiously, thinking of all the different ways it could be applied in different settings. Um, I would love to keep talking to you about this, but I, I'm relatively rigorous about trying to keep to a sort of 20 minutes or so. Um, 
Thank you very much indeed, both of you. Um, and also, I should just reiterate the fact that the book is going to be free and it, it, open access is just hugely important because it really does mean people are going to be able to see fantastically complicated and interesting. And I just love the fact that you both of you repeatedly coming back and telling me they are so different. You know, that's just, I mean, different from each other is so important and just so fascinating to explore. So thank you very much indeed for your time, both of you. Thank you so much, Alex. Thank you. Thank you, Alex.